Well, hello, and welcome to the fifth episode of the Adventures in Creative Development podcast. So it's been a little while since the last one, but, you know, I've been busy and no one pays me to do this, so uh, you have to wait until I get the kind of moment uh, or the inspiration strikes me. Uh, so today we're going to be talking to Ian Herbert from the University of Loughborough's Business School. Ian's been doing some really interesting work looking at the way in which uh, organisations are changing their career structures and changing the way that they do business. And we talk about some of the implications of that, as well as some of Ian's earlier work uh, looking at the issue of, of employability and particularly at work placements. So it's coming at some of these issues from a slightly different angle than I often come at them. Uh, career is one of these fields which is very interdisciplinary, so we work across different fields. And so I'm usually coming at things from a much more of an educational point of view. Ian comes at things from a, a, a kind of an organisational studies, business school kind of point of view. But I really think it's interesting to hear some of these different sorts of perspectives. So uh, without further ado, we're going to kind of uh, move over to, to talk to Ian and uh, hopefully you'll find some of this really interesting. So I'm Ian Herbert. I've been in higher education now for uh, 28 years. I'm uh, nominally in the uh, accounting and finance area. Um, and over that period of time, I've had a number of, um, I suppose, if you like, uh, interfaces, um, happen chance um, occasions to really get into the idea of um, careers and particularly notions of employability. Why don't you just start with just telling us, okay, so how did you end up in a, in a working in a university? You, you say you're in accounting and finance, you're, you're, are you an accountant by training? Or? Accountant by training, I'd, um, like a lot of accountants, uh, I'd moved into general management roles having um, first started with a company in accounting and one day in my sort of uh, early 30s I really uh, wanted to pursue an MBA and so I left the um, very well paid job that I uh, had there. Started with the MBA at Nottingham University, it was full time and uh, someone just said would you like to do some lecturing at the uh, local polytechnic and I, I, I did that, it, it grew very rapidly once I'd uh, started it was only covering maternity leave but it became a full-time job by the end of the year and uh, I've been here ever since so, and uh, enjoying it still. So what was it that made you think you wanted to go back, like to, to stay in academia rather than go back into practice? I think it's because academia enables me the freedom to not only teach young people and uh, I think that's always a satisfying thing to do, but with um, the research um, freedom that you, you get at a place like Loughborough, I spend a lot of time still in industry mm. and so you get to see what goes on backstage, you, you get to operate at quite a high level in a lot of different companies. I think you can start to see patterns which the people who are doing the day job, as I used to, um, just don't get to see. 
when you're doing research, you you see multiple firms, whereas mm. when you're when you're in practice, you only ever really see your immediate situation. So it's difficult Absolutely. to spot a pattern from yes. kind of one example. Yes. Isn't it? Yeah. And I think the other thing is you see a lot of uh, commonalities between firms, whereas in any one firm. Um, everyone will tell you it's different to every other competitor you've got, every other member of the industry and every other uh, company on the planet because you've got this system that reflects your culture, yeah. your unique culture, and it's not really. Yeah. Um, yeah. A lot of what we do in business is very much um, transferable between companies, between roles, between parts of uh, companies. And I, uh, I guess you can see here a little bit of an agenda and mission um, mm. in life to just flag up how much of this stuff is really common. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that's common between your discipline and some of the sorts of stuff that I've, I've done is that ultimately you're in a, in a vocational discipline. You're, you're training people, uh, educating people for going out into practice. And so I wonder what, as, as a teacher, how do you think that changes what you do if you're trying to prepare the next generation of accountants or business professionals or whatever it might be? Right. Okay. You mentioned the word there, training, which yeah. we would uh, rail against. Uh, we would see ourselves in education, mm. but we would also like to stress on that, that it is general education. In the, and that doesn't mean to say that it's somehow uh, watered down or some uh, mm. just common denominator. But what we're really trying to get students do, to do to see within their um, core discipline of accounting and finance or economics or marketing or whatever, what we're trying to do is to look at situations in an analytical way, to be critical about things, to be able to deconstruct complex um, scenarios, situations, and then put them back together again in a way that makes sense, makes for decisions which improve things, whether that be by better control or uh, actually new creative ideas, and then to be able to explain that to someone else. In a way, that leads us on to the, the kind of placements and work-related learning idea, doesn't it? Because if you say, well... Even if you're in a vocational sort of field in a university, your, your purpose is not to teach people to do the detailed things of practice. Yeah. It's to give them that, that bigger grounding and to give them some of the theory and principles that underpin their day-to-day -day practice. That does then ask firms and employers to do a lot of the actual development of core skills that you're going to do, that you're going to need for your actual work. Um, do you think that the, the, the idea of like sandwich placements or short-term work experience and these things, does that kind of bridge that gap? It does partly. In, in the business school, um, in our DNA, which goes right the way through Loughborough uh, University from its inception um, in the early 1900s, is the idea of uh, work experience, work experience in conjunction with academic study. So in the business school, that manifests itself as completely mandatory placements, which they have to find themselves. We, we do give a, a lot of support to that, yeah. but basically we don't go along to an employer and say, right, we've got 20 people, yeah. and come back and say, right, it's you, you 20. They've got to get through the uh, competitive process themselves. Yeah. So. That that's really, I think, 
the way that we come at it, of course, we have um, hugely philosophical debates about um, how we best prepare people mm. for the outside world. And of course, just to give you a completely, um, you know, what might seem mundane example, if you take something like um, double entry bookkeeping, mm. there's a train of thought that um, at a university you shouldn't be doing that because it's the nuts and bolts, um, it's bookkeeping, and you should be looking at higher level skills. Yeah. However, there's also uh, a view that these are the building blocks. That's yeah. the way the whole system inherently works. Uh, so we, we have those sort of debates and there's no right and wrong answer. But yes, we're not trying to teach people to do the job. We're trying to um, get people to understand what is involved in the job. Yeah. And if they choose to go into that, to um, be able to get on board um, the modern idiom, on board very quickly and then to be able to take it further than they would have otherwise been able to do if they'd just gone in and been trained to do that job. So it's that critical thinking which will enable them not to get stuck in that job by the time they're 30, but to be able to go on to uh, a full career where they rise much higher than that. We've started to talk about placements. Um, what, you've written obviously a book on placements aimed at, at, at students who are thinking about placements. Mm -hmm. um, what do you think, what, what does make an effective placement? If you're going to spend a year as part of your education, actually in the workplace, what is, what is going to make that into a useful experience? Right. It, it, it's interesting. You could put it in terms of a lot of um, transferable skills and uh, sometimes that gets um, almost configured into a tick box. Uh, we have an expression here the, about placement that um, kids go out, adults come back. There is a transformative change between people that we see that we teach in the second year and in the third year of study, their, their fourth year of um, being on the programme. And it's about a lot of different things. I think mainly, apart from that sort of maturity, it gives them something to bring to the party in their final year of study. Instead of us just standing there and giving them more and more knowledge, uh, yes, at a, a, at a higher level, um, it has to be said, between second and third year, it enables them to bring their experiences into it, into uh, class discussions, and it also enables them to synthesise that academic theory and practice yeah. much better. Um, but I think the other thing that it uh, does, and um, I don't know whether we, we can take a lot of... Um, academic credit for that but we do acknowledge it is that it enables them to get a job on graduation yeah. uh, increasingly the placement is seen as an interview for the graduate job and therefore in the final year if they're not having to concentrate on job hunting they can do a much better job at their academic studies yeah. that really is a, a, a big difference that's and even if yeah. um, they've had the placement and decided that um, they never want to work for that company or in that mm. uh, type of job again it means that uh, well yeah they've got some work to do in their third year to um, get a graduate job on the one hand they've probably saved themselves a hell of a lot of heartache by starting on a graduate career that's not going to be right for them yeah I mean, I think one of the things that I've, I've found since I've been working a lot with employers is 
that they really value the the placement experiences partly because they give them that kind of try before you buy yeah sense which which in some senses you can say well you know there's 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 some things which are a bit problematic about that but on the other hand it's also about it's about finding a good fit between the individual mm. and the f- firm and the yeah. and the field that they're going to go yeah. in and i think from every everybody's experience the the placement offers quite a lot really in terms mm. of, of learning about the individual and learning about career and so on and of course the other thing is nowadays that uh, some of the people that we've got particularly on um, our accounting and finance uh, degree go out and uh, earn some quite serious money in the city of london Mm -hmm. and i'm talking about jobs 30 to forty thousand pounds and for those that um, you know can live at home and commute into london that's a serious amount off their uh, student debt so you've written also about employability more generally. Mm-hmm. Tell us a bit more about how do you define that term because it's a very it is a kind of contentious term. People define it in different ways. How do you think about employability? Employability, uh, very simply, that's the ability to keep the job you have whilst getting the next job. Right. It goes beyond career to a little bit more the here and now and. Whilst career management is still important, you do have to recognise that it is more varied, um, happen chance. You know, the the analogy is that uh, it's crazy paving and you lay it yourself. If you're not able to move seamlessly within the labour market by having good employability skills at that particular point in time, then you're not going to build that career through a series of, um, you know, smaller steps so how much is it a university's job to develop somebody's employability it's it's a big one and of course um, with student debt then there is a expectation that they should be employable and able to get a job on, on graduation now of course there's a lot of different things going into that it's school experience it's um work experience, whether that's an organised placement or a series of um, casual jobs, if you like, uh, that they've had up to that. I think sometimes that from during in um, the 90s, where there was probably little emphasis on employability generally, to where we are now with it becoming a little bit instrumental Mm. in in the whole process there was probably a balance where it probably felt right to me about five years ago right yeah whilst it's terribly important for young people to get a good job um, a good graduate level job I think we still have to set university as three or four years within a lifetime career Mm. and I think that's what we need to be thinking about in higher education how do we prepare someone to have those analytical and critical skills for a lifetime, not just to get a job when they're 21 or 22. Yeah, and I think employability is quite a helpful concept mm. for that because it isn't just about employment, is it? It is mm. that idea of being able to read the labour market, duck and weave, have yep. transferable skills that people can make use of in a number of contexts mm. rather than just saying, you know, university should get you a job and that that's mm. it. So. All right, if we're going to shift tack a little bit now, because you, you, you've written some really interesting stuff on 
what we're sort of variously calling shared service centres and business process centres. Yeah. And probably many of the people who might be listening to this won't have a clue what those things are. So do you want okay. to start by just explaining right. what, what it is we're talking about? Very, very briefly, the idea of uh, a shared service centre is really internal outsourcing. And what we mean by that is where you take a lot of jobs that have probably been fragmented all over a uh, large um, organisation, each uh, particular division, whether it's UK, um, France, Australia, wherever, has had its own um, business support staff, accountants, HR specialists, IT, procurement, legal, etc. And you take those people or those roles and you aggregate them into a common centre. Mm. And what you do there, having got those roles together, then you can bring best experts, best uh, technology, best process thinking to make those roles better, more efficient and effective. Yeah. Instead of um, everybody doing the same um, particular job, or more importantly, perhaps not doing the same job but not in the same ways, you can bring those uh, jobs together, say posting to the purchase ledger, approving invoices, um, just as a sort of transactional accounting situation. You can bring them together, you can automate the process, you can have a lot more uh, information around what people are doing, and you can use all that call centre style technology, whereas one person doesn't do the whole of a uh, particular activity, they do parts of a process. and then you can apply um, all sorts of uh, operational style thinking to that. Um, people call it the factorization um, of accounting and um, professions. I don't quite see it that way, but you can apply that sort of methodology of lean and lean yeah. working to it. So basically, you get something where work comes together and is much more efficient. What you've got to then manage is the time and distance, the separation, in other words, between the people in the business who are now customers of that work. Yeah. And the way that you do that is manage it through um, quasi-contractual agreements. You think like a business, act like a business, but you are still under top management control. So the important things, such as standardization of, uh, and harmonization of procedures, protocols, standards, mm -hmm. Um, systems that can be done the idea is and a lot of people miss this because they just think of um, jobs disappearing is that you are putting together a platform of professional support services that can be used by your organization whenever wherever so that's um, a little bit about the shared service centre. I mean, it's more I, complex than uh, it sounds. I mean, I, I get I, I get the idea. Um, I think probably a lot of people, uh, and people can probably see the value of it in that um, you get you get potentially access to greater expertise, and mm. um, you'll get you'll get collections of, of professionals who can support each other, and and you're not dependent. You know, if John's on off on holiday, you don't. Yeah. Uh, you can, you know, still you can still get some support, but I think people are probably aware of some of the problems with that as well, mm -hmm. and particularly that idea that you are under a contractual relationship. So whereas previously you had someone who sat on the next desk as you who could help you with when you were putting your expenses in or sort out your computer, mm -hmm. 
you're now essentially in a contractual relationship with a part of your business. Yes. And that that can presumably can create some friction as well as as well as solve some problems. It causes a lot of friction, um, mainly because of um, if you like that whole corporate change management thing that has been rumbling on for um, a long time. But if you think about it this way, if you think about your business being challenged by, say, Amazon, who have suddenly rocked up into your space mm. and are totally disrupting the environment, then you have to think differently. All those people who might say, I don't know how to do my expenses, I don't know how to do this, and I don't know how to do that, it's changed, it's different, I've no one to ask, they go home and guess what? They buy things on eBay mm. with a completely standard system. They very quickly find a way of working around Facebook, around Amazon. They have all that data, all that information of what they've bought, what the people they're dealing with, what their uh, performance ratings are and what have you. And has anybody ever been on an Amazon training course? No. 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 It's completely standard the world over. And it works. And once people, and th this is where um, those sort of disruptors, I think, have made a big impression on corporate life, is that they've set a standard. You don't need training. You just need to uh, tell people to do it or ask them nicely to do yeah. it or encourage them to do it or say, if you want some money out of the system, you better figure your way through this or you do little training videos like um, you can get on uh, YouTube and stuff. But once you have that sort of shift in mentality, then anything is possible. Yeah. I mean, I think, I guess the problems that people have had with that is that a lot of internal business process systems don't have the kind of slickness of a lot of the consumer and consumer type of systems. Absolutely. And, and that, but I mean, that's that's not really an objection of principle. It's, a, it's, it's an objection mm. of implementation, isn't it, really? Ab so, absolutely. Yeah. And what you'll find is, a lot of businesses are just giving people uh, who need to buy things credit cards and saying up to £5,000, buy it off Amazon. Yeah. Now, that is revolutionary thinking within organisations to what might have happened 10, 20 years ago. Um, so, but it's happening. So what about, so if we, if we take, if we accept this idea that th this is happening, um, certainly in some firms and, 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 and certainly for some functions, what are the career implications for it? What, what jobs is it going to affect? Is it going to affect all jobs? And, and what's the issue of being kind of divorced from the main swim of the, of the firm that you're part of? Right. Well, there's a, there's a lot there. The, the first thing is, and just taking the, the last point uh, first, be, there's a lot of concern about uh, people being divorced from the firm, mm. both geographically and spiritually if you like the old um, contractual relationship between employee and employer is, is being broken uh, in all sorts of ways it's, it, it is becoming more short-term more contractual and when you've taken these people um, or usually you've made redundant the people who are out in the business units mm. They've probably got very nice um, packages often in uh, the big multinationals or whatever, but a lot of those roles have, have disappeared. You've got new workers who are coming in, often on different contracts, often, uh, if it's offshore, uh, completely different contracts, terms of working, certainly wages. Mm. They 
are not identifying with the mother organization that they're serving. Now, for a company, that's great in certain ways, and it makes it easier to outsource, which yeah. is the way you get final optimization of uh, resources after stabilization in five years' time. But it's something they're obviously having to manage, and a lot of the companies that we've seen put a lot into it. So if you walk into, um, I mean, I, I won't mention the company, but if you walk into their offices in uh, the UK and in um, Malaysia and India and South Africa, the offices are exactly the same. Yeah. They put a lot of effort into that corporate identity. Um, so yeah, it's, it's something that's um, perhaps an opportunity, something that I think is just um, the way that it, it's going to work for a lot of people, um, whether in shared services or in corporate life generally. Um, but I think a lot of things that companies are having to do to redress that. thing that um, people might be concerned about is that you've talked a lot about the business benefits and you can mm -hmm. see how, yeah, this kind of thing may well make businesses cheaper, may, you know, you can potentially push salaries down and so on. There's not a lot of what you've said that seems to be in it for the for the individual worker who's 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 going through this process and perhaps has had one kind of uh, experience and, and then either they're losing their job or they're being shifted into a very different kind of working environment. It, it might sound that way. One of the things that happens is that when you get a more um, automation uh, augmented environment, should we say, technology based, is that you end up with very flat working structures. Mm -hmm. Even now, one supervisor supervising 50 people and being able to do that um, quite effectively because of the metrics they're getting yeah. out of uh, the system. And what it means for an individual is that if you're looking across and you see 49 other people competing for that one job, you might not even have the motivation to bother putting yeah. yourself through uh, further education, etc., further training, further uh, effort, because you're, there's only a 2% chance you're actually going yeah. to get that job. And I think that that is something that we've got to address. More positively, though, for and we always say uh, this is something um, Andy Rothwell and myself have had as a theme going through our employability, is that people only focus on the people that are in work, the people that have been displaced, mm. maybe having a good life um, on you know, good severance packages. They may be really struggling. It's very difficult for researchers to actually get hold of them and to find out what's happening. Yeah. So there's a big caveat here. We don't know the, the real downside of these uh, shifts. But the advantages are for people is that if you're working in a system which is now becoming uh, very vanilla, unlike uh, other corporate systems, you've got better employability mm. because you're not tarred with the brush of, oh, well, you've worked for so-and-so, you won't be any good in our industry. You've got more portability mm. because you, you, you've got more generic um, systems knowledge. Yeah. Um, what happens in um, service centres is once you've got a core of um, staff, you're continually migrating more and more work in. Some of the jobs are uh, being routinized, and time is freed up for those people to do uh, higher level skills, like to look at the data, mm. not to just keep uh, processing it, but also you get a lot of different skills. So we've seen people who've uh, probably been you know, senior purchase ledger clerk uh, for 30 years, 
they've uh, gone into a shared service centre and suddenly they're in project management roles. They're helping to migrate work in. They're helping to re-engineer that um, work. Yeah. And of course they've become quite expert at that because they've got some successive migrations of work coming in. So you end up with um, people in systems roles who had quite narrow operational roles in the past. So that's, mm. that's a great opportunity. I can, I can really see that. that the, the, by pulling things together, you end up with the creation of the possibility for strategy where there previously was no yes. possibility. And then that, that then opens up potentially some higher level roles. Yes. Um, well, yeah. We've particularly seen that in uh, places like Sri Lanka and Malaysia. Uh, you know, people who've now got very good careers on the global stage Mm. And of course, uh, Sri Lanka is almost famous for its uh, professional uh, diaspora, mm. um, but they are becoming quite marketable people at operations management in professional services and are going all over the world. Brilliant. All right. Well, I think we're probably out of time, but I think, I mean, I think it's really, really interesting when we have new kind of business and labour market formations like the ones we're talking mm. about, then it's not always immediately apparent what the career implications of that are and mm. sometimes that emerges over time but I think it's really important that we spend some time thinking about it and yeah. talking about these things as they emerge. Okay. So thank you Ian for, for joining us. Thank you very much Tristan. Been a pleasure.